The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're going to be in Galatians 4. Uh, we will project uh, some of the text onto the board as we go. I'm going to read it as we begin. Uh, so I'll read the passage. We'll pray together and then we'll dive right in. Uh, just a quick note. Um, we've been doing the uh, potential question and answer time. Uh, Jacob's not here, so the, the fake number that we've been texting for questions is not available to us. So if as we go through the sermon you feel compelled to ask a question, if you're here in person with us, you're more than welcome to ask that. I'll just repeat your question for those at home and for those watching remotely. We don't really have a way this week at least to be able to access those questions. I didn't want to tax the, um, the tech people with monitoring Facebook Live or any of that. So uh, if you have a question, I would ask you to hang on to it. You can contact me in some way. The other thing I would say too, the, the topic today is such that it could go a lot of different directions in terms of questions. So what I would ask is if you have a question that's of general interest, uh, something clarifying the passage, clarifying something that I said, uh, please ask that. There can be scenarios that go through so many different layers of context that um, like some people ask a question that's so specific to the situation that they're dealing with that, that it can be hard to, to answer that question for the benefit of all. So uh, just keep that in mind as we go. Uh, and I'd, I'd love to answer any clarifying questions we have. So without further ado, I'll read, we'll pray, and then we'll get to it. Paul writes, I beg of you, brothers, because, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You've done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I'm present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for our existence. Uh, we're grateful for the world that you've made, for our place in it, uh, for the joys of human relationship, of uh, spring in New England. We're grateful for your word and translation that we can know you. Uh, we're grateful that we can be in fellowship with each other. And I pray amid all of our difficulties, all of our trials of the week, I pray that your spirit would pierce that, that you would speak to us in this time, that there would be something of benefit for all of us as we reflect on what it means uh, to live before you. Amen. 
So today's passage brings us back to the specific uh, situation in Galatia. So Paul's been expounding on some, some profound ideas and arguments, as well as some confusing images and ideas as he's gone through talking about adoption, as he's talked about justification and all of these, these ideas. But in this passage, he brings us back to Galatia. And we're reminded that Paul's theology, his view of God, his view of the Christian life, his view of his community, it doesn't exist in an ivory tower. These aren't abstract theological ideas cooked up in some library somewhere, but they're actually uh, boots-on-the-ground ideas. This battle is being fought on the ground with real people in real circumstances, and the stakes are high. And in this passage, what Paul does is he actually appeals to them personally. And he's not done that yet. Uh, Paul's tone so far has been, I would call it aggressive and confrontational. Uh, he's been, been pretty aggressive throughout, going after the incorrectness of their ideas, their, um, uh, his enemies, the enemies of the gospel, the agitators. And Paul actually, even in this passage, addresses his tone. So if that's a strange idea for you to consider that the Bible writers actually had tone when they wrote, Paul seems to be self-aware. Uh, that he's written to them in some pretty confrontational ways. And more than that, he has built a constructive case. He's not just tearing down false ideas. He's actually building, building constructive ideas as well. He's drawing on the narrative of the Bible, uh, particularly Abram's faith and talking about what faith in Jesus looks like. As Jacob led us through a couple weeks on adoption, uh, he draws on these Greco-Roman categories as well, all to describe what God has done in Jesus. But up to this point, and I don't know if I'm alone in this, it's been difficult to hear Paul's pastoral heart. And I'm somebody who, like, I understand that confrontation is a part of life, it's a part of leadership, it's a part of community. But if we were hard-pressed to really think, like Paul's correcting their ideas, and that's, that's love, certainly. But it's been hard to hear the affection that Paul has for the Galatians, at least for me. And I, I, could, I could be alone on that one. It's hard to hear that beating pastoral heart. But today... Um, in this passage, he gives a pastoral appeal based on his deep affection for them, based out of the depths of his love for the Galatians. And that brings us to today's main point, which I hope to flesh out. Christian community is marked by self-giving love. So this passage begins with Paul writing about the love and kindness that the Galatians showed him uh, in the first place when they first met. He goes on to describe the leadership style that they've been experiencing at the hands of the agitators, and he pivots pretty quickly to talk about the type of leadership that they should be expecting uh, in the church. And he concludes with a heartfelt uh, personal appeal to them to reconsider their current course. He says, I'm confused about you. And he wishes that he could be with them uh, present with them so that he could uh, perhaps overcome that, that confusion. So what we have in this passage is two very different visions of leadership. So on the one hand, you have Paul leading not just by words, but by example, um, not just by appeal, 
but by experience. And we see in Paul's language a a genuine, heartfelt concern for the well-being of the people in his charge. Paul's not coercive. He's not manipulative. So that's one vision of leadership. And on the other hand, we have... We're reintroducing the agitators. So these opponents of the Galatians, these opponents of Paul, these opponents of the gospel itself, we're bringing them back into, uh, back into the story. Now it says that they seek to bring, uh, well, they, they seek the Galatians zealously. Um, and their, at least the way the text portrays it, their vision of leadership is those who seek to bring the Galatians back into slavery, right? So Paul has expounded this simple gospel of faith in Jesus, and they sort of slither in afterward and they corrupt it, right? They are looking to bring the Galatians under a form of control again. So faith was too simple, um, they reason. So they're adding circumcision. And this is where you have the idea that people who are really spiritually mature are going to have all these external markers. That's the Galatian form of leadership. So you see what we have in terms of competing visions. Now, these are difficult categories to think through and, quite frankly, uh, even more difficult to talk about. Um, For some of us, we've never had to consider such things as toxic leadership inside the church. Uh, For others of us, we've actually been deeply wounded and traumatized by toxic leadership inside the church. Leaders that, that weaponize faith and spirituality. And this is precisely what the Galatians are facing. And it's a tragedy to say the least. Personally, I feel like there's nothing more damaging to the cause of Christ than corrupt leadership in his name. I don't know that there's any greater damage to the witness of the church. And I want to talk through some of these dynamics because I feel like that's where the text leads. Right? I don't want to blow it out of proportion as though it's the only thing that the text talks about. Um, and this is because of my experience. Uh, I've, I've asked several of you to be praying for me uh, in terms of not blowing a gasket in the middle of the sermon. So we've carefully stationed ninjas throughout. If I start to go too far, they're... And then David will come back up and, and pray. And if I'm laying on the floor, I'll be all right. Don't, don't worry about me. It's, it's all going to be okay. It's all, it's all part of the plan. But this is going on in the text. It's a legitimate dynamic. This is what the text says. And I think if Paul was inspired to write it, we should be inspired to read it and to think about it. So, as I see it, as we think about leadership, there's two extremes. First, there is cynicism about leaders. Jacob spoke uh, last week about cynicism. It's about believing that the root of something is inherently corrupt. So as we look to leadership, I think we can all see this clearly, Um, especially coming off a political cycle, right? There's a widespread cynicism about leadership. Uh, And under this category, we might believe that leaders are inherently corrupt and following their leadership is just dubious at best. So that's one extreme. And on the other extreme, uh, there's naive hero worship. So in this category, the leader can do no wrong, right? Uh, The leader must not be questioned. And further, we must appear at all times, in all places, to be loyal to the leader. And these aren't just our categories. 
um, I believe they're important to understand the passage. So as we think through them, I want us to try to walk in between these two extremes, right? By virtue of our experiences, we may be inclined towards cynicism, but I don't think that that's where the gospel lands us. I think that there can be very good reasons uh, for that cynicism, and I am certainly open to hearing those. The other extreme being naive sort of hero worship, we don't want to walk in either of those places because I don't think that that's where the gospel would land us. But we want to walk this middle road, uh, sober-minded in our reflection, realistic without being cynical or naive. So we want to be realistic and we want to think about these things. We want to be hopeful in all of the positive benefits of godly leadership but also aware that we live in a fallen world. Okay? Fair enough? All right, good. I I don't know what I would do if you said no. Like, oh, well, I already have it written, so we'll just go with it. So, anyway, so as we walk through this passage, what I'd like for this all to be tethered by is this idea of self-giving love. So that's the point. Christian community is marked by self-giving love, and we'll flesh this out. So first... In reflecting on self-giving love, we see this idea of acceptance, and that's 12 to 16, which I believe... Oh, wait, let's pause on this slide for a second so that I'll give you the whole sermon in a nutshell right at the beginning. In community, we're going to see acceptance, we're going to see zeal of various sorts, and then finally we're going to see affection. So let's, let's get right to it with acceptance. So in verses 12 to 16, which we'll read here, He says, I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You've done me no wrong. But you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy? By and when you consider this, it's, I think it's kind of funny in like a heavy production age to think of how unimpressive the Apostle Paul is. Like clearly one of the most brilliant theologians in the history of the church, if not the most brilliant. Uh, and he's very unimpressive. Like we've been introduced to this idea before. In uh, Corinth, they say, well, Paul's fiery in his letters, but he's very unimpressive when he, when he comes to speak. And what's funny about this is that Paul's initial presentation of the gospel in Galatia wasn't like this win-back Galatia evangelistic crusade that happened with massive production value, you know, third day or Stephen Curtis Chapman or insert your popular Christian musician who, like Cynthia said, like that reference dates you. And I said that, like, well, an evangelistic crusade, I think, also dates me. So if we're going whole hog, we might as well, uh, you know, introduce Stephen Curtis Chapman as of popular uh, reference. For those of you who don't know who Stephen Curtis Chapman is, I guess you could ask your grandparents. I don't know. But the idea here is that Paul, that's not what happened in Galatia. Um, It's this sovereign accident that he even preaches the gospel to them in the first place. And I love this because in all of our age of high-flown production value, just the fact that it was 
a disaster like this points to God's activity in it. So reflecting on this alone is worth considering, particularly how God orchestrates these things so that it's so clearly his doing, right? Nobody's dropping a positive review of the, the Apostle Paul after this. Like, just imagine we invite, you know, pick whoever your popular Christian speaker is. We have him or her up for the weekend, and they get here and they're just sick for the entire time. And we kind of cart them up here and they deliver this very unimpressive speech. Like, nobody's giving, like, positive reviews of that. I I imagine, given the amount of, uh, you know, negative commentary there can be on social media, I'm guessing that, that it wouldn't be, wouldn't be viewed as positive. But this is Paul ministering at a low moment, and it doesn't take much imagination to picture how unimpressive this is. And yet, Paul was well received by the Galatians. They don't only accept the fact that he's coming to them at a low moment, but they express love and they express hospitality. Uh, they, they, just express, they just express a lot of love for him, and they serve him in his time of need. So you have this personal narrative at the beginning, and then the paragraph ends with this very sharp question, which is, have I therefore become your enemy by telling you the truth? And he asks, Where is that sense of blessing that you had when I was sick laying on your couch, right? Where did that sense of blessing go? Is it because I'm telling you the truth now that I'm your enemy? And this shows one of the two-edged swords of community. When Paul was in a state of weakness, they were fine to accept him. They were fine to show love, obviously, at their own expense. But now that he's confronting them, the dynamic has changed. So acceptance in community means that we need to be open to all of the complex realities of being in fellowship with each other. So in in Christian community, the addition is we're willing to forgive and be reconciled to each other when we inevitably rough each other up. And this segues into the next paragraph, but we don't want to miss this, that acceptance happens on multiple levels, right? that the Galatians were willing to accept Paul in their weakness. But a, a part of community that we need to consider is, are we, do, do we like the sense of community, which is like when everything's nice and you've only known each other for two weeks, do we like that sense of community, or are we willing to put up with community in all of its complexity? Like when we have to inevitably argue about something. Spend a lot of years with somebody, I'm given to understand that that's going to happen. We're, we're going to collide with each other. So that's what's happening here in Galatia. And Paul asks them, am I your enemy now because I'm telling you the truth? So when Paul, uh, he's given a rather lovely personal narrative of his relationship, but there's no such narrative given for the agitators. So what Paul is asking them to do inherently is to consider their experience together, right? They know Paul. They know that he didn't come in in flashy style. He was was sick or, I mean, some sort of issue going on that makes him very unimpressive. Maybe Paul wrote about it in one of his, you know, if, if he were to release a series of books, maybe he'd talk about that. But it... To me, it shows like the irony of Christian leadership, that this is, this is not of high production value. And those are usually the signs that God uh, is at work. 
But anyway, Paul's going to shift and he's going to turn to talking about them. So explicit mention of the agitators has been absent for a while. We haven't, we haven't had them here. But Paul is going to return here to discussing the damage caused by his opponents. So we move from acceptance to talk about zeal in verses 17 and 18. And this is another critical element of self-giving love in Christian community. Paul writes, they eagerly seek you. That eagerly is zealously. That's where I'm getting the word zeal right from the text. Not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. And not only when I am present with you. So there's a lot that could be said about this, but I want to focus on how we show zeal in community. And I want you to observe that there is a positive function of zeal and there is a negative function as well. So on the negative side, Paul says that the agitators are zealous for you, and he says not commendably, but they wish to shut you out in order that you may seek them. Now, I want to talk for a little bit, if not a lot of bit, about red flags when it comes to leaders. Because I believe that there is a huge warning here uh, in this passage, and one that we need to take seriously, right? This isn't a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Um, this, This is for us in the here and now. So, one of the huge warnings comes right from the text itself. It says... Uh, they seek you, but not commendably, in order that you may seek them. Now, if your red flags just went up, that's good. This sort of community is the type that isolates people so that leaders become the center of attention. Um, And I think that some of us have experienced that. It has all the markers of a cult of personality. And I'll just limit my rhetoric to life inside the church. Um, But it's selfish, it's insecure, it's people who their only concern for you is concern in as much as you fall in line with what they teach. Um, And some of us, again, have experienced this. It's not service, it's not love, it's not real concern, it's padding numbers. It's human beings working out their insecurity by using other people. And that's what's happening with the agitators. They slither into Galatia. The gospel that Paul preached is not quite good enough. So what we're going to do is we're going to set up all these false external markers, which are not going to open you up to Jesus any further. It's just going to make us more of a community with one another. And it does not point the Galatians to freedom in Jesus. It points them back to the leaders. So those are the things that are red flags. This has nothing to do with Jesus' character. It has nothing to do with the liberating power of the gospel. Nothing to do with the flourishing of the Galatians. It's bringing them into a corrupt system with these false leaders as the figureheads. It has nothing to do with entering into the fullness of what God has for you, as Ephesians 3 says. 
Right, and I'll just use the New Testament because the opposite of the, the red flags is the constructive vision that the New Testament actually has. Paul in Ephesians 3 prays that they would be filled up to all the fullness of God. That's what legitimate leadership points you to, to flourishing. It has nothing to do, in the case of the Galatians, it has nothing to do with the abundant life that Jesus spoke of in John 10. Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that you might have it to the full. The agitators aren't offering that up. It's just a will to power. It's corrupt, it's ungodly, it's coercive, it's manipulative. And toxic church uh, leadership could be a subject all its own, and quite frankly, is becoming a very public topic, for which I am grateful. Light needs to be shed on these things as public scandal and abuse can no longer be suppressed. These things are coming out into the open, and I thank God for it. Um, because there's so much damage that gets done. And I'd be happy to point you in the direction of some resources as we, as we talk about this. And that conversation goes beyond the immediate uh, concerns of the text today, but I think it's an important conversation nonetheless. And the church needs to be vigilant in her awareness of these issues and shedding light on them. Um, and I'm grateful that these things are coming out into the open more so. Um, but Jesus spoke about this kind of leadership, this kind of leadership that doesn't point you to Jesus but points you to the leaders. So in Matthew 23, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. These are people who are zealous for padding numbers. They have no concern about the people themselves. They're only concerned about converts. And again, in Matthew 23, talking about the religious leaders again, they tie up heavy loads and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much than the tassels of their garments. That's just a way of saying that their suits always look good, right? They're just always looking good there in public. And that's what they're about. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called by men, Rabbi. So these dynamics were not unknown to Jesus in his day. This is the type of leadership that is zeal that is not commendable. It's padded numbers. It has no concern for the flourishing of another person. And that is precisely what makes it ungodly. Jesus' pursuit of people is always for their benefit, for their flourishing. So that's the negative side. And I'd be happy to talk red flags, but it's probably best that I, I stick to the script. I would love to be able to point you in the direction of some resources, but these are the types of things that we want to avoid. And these are the things that, as Christians, you call it out when you see it. And I'm happy, as an elder here, to saw off the very branch that I'm standing on. There's nobody here in a hierarchy that's above confrontation on these issues. I remember having a professor at, at Gordon-Conwell who, he was cracking a joke, but it was, it was well taken. He said, if he you know, is ever in a position to write the notes for a study Bible, 
<laughs> and if his name is bigger than the word Bible on the cover, like somebody needs to confront that. If the name of the senior pastor on the church sign is bigger than the name of the church, there's some things that need to be considered. And I'm, I mean, those are partially jokes. But there are red flags that we need to be aware of because nobody ever goes from zero to 60 in terms of toxic leadership. Nobody ever starts there. There's little unfaithfulnesses along the way. And I think as a community, um, our obligation is to call people on that in godly ways. So, but the text balances us out. Zeal is a two-sided coin. So in the first part, it's obviously a negative pursuit. We want to avoid this. We want to avoid being pursued this way. We want to avoid pursuing people this way um, at all costs. But Paul goes on to say it's good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner. So Paul's going to go on in the rest of Galatians to expound what this would look like. He's going to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. He's going to talk about life and community, all these things. Um, But I think that we do know better than Jesus' own words here when he said, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. This should be the blueprint for our life as a community. So marked by self-giving love. Jesus is interested in our flourishing and not just vaguely interested as an abstract category. He puts up his own life as capital for that. That's how interested Jesus is in our flourishing. And there are several other ways. I mean, Jesus' whole life is an example of this, right? But there's other places where this gets fleshed out in the New Testament. Ephesians 5.25 says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her, right? So being pursued in a commendable way means that you are pursuing the other person independent of your own interests for their flourishing. And in Ephesians 5, what that looks like in a marriage context is husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Does that make sense? Like this is a way that it's I'm trying to take it as an abstract category of self-giving love and say, this is exactly how it shows up. So being sought in a commendable way is being sought for your own flourishing. Paul will go on in Ephesians 5 to talk about all of the positive benefits for a wife who is loved in this way, right? That's the kind of thing. Not interested for your own gain, you're interested for the flourishing of others. Colossians 3.21 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. This is just another example of where you're seeking the flourishing of another person. Now, I'm happy to say in both of these examples, I would not put myself forward as somebody who like does these faithfully. And this isn't like a shame-based exercise and we all go home feeling bad about ourselves for every, every possible way that we fail. I actually want to arm my children who are sitting right here with these verses so that when their dad is a complete buffoon, which he is, it's not endorsed by God. So if my children grow up to resent me because of what a buffoon I am, I do not want that projected on God. Does that make sense? And if I can carry it back to church leadership, there is so much damage that gets done 
by toxic church leadership. That if you walk away because we collectively as human beings are a buffoon, I can live with that. But I hate that that gets projected as though Jesus was endorsing that. I think that to me is the greatest tragedy. Does that make sense? So I'm actually just arming my children. I'll tell you one funny story. Like I probably write a whole memoir on all the ways that I'm a buffoon. So the boys, the two oldest, were, were young at the time. They were making a lot of noise, but I can't remember exactly what it was. I'm sure they weren't really doing anything wrong. But I'm walking up the stairs, and I'm telling myself internally, do not blow up. Do not blow up. Do not blow up. And all of a sudden, the narrator's voice came. <laughs> do you know what he said? Peter blew up. And as soon as I got upstairs, I did all the things that I didn't want to do in terms of exploding over... I, they were probably playing with Legos. I don't know if this has ever happened in your house, but it, it's a hallmark of mine. The point being not that I just left it as like, oh, I'm such a loser. I apologized to them. And I even told them this whole unfolding narrative of how I came up resolved not to do the very thing that I ended up doing. And it, I hope, I mean, you'd have to ask them, it became funny um, just, but the point being that I'm not saying that we do this perfectly. I'm saying that when we don't, we apologize for it, right? And, and I think that should be a hallmark of our leadership. You think about it in work, at your place of work. How powerful it is when you wrong somebody and you, like, I mean, just think about a time you've ever received an apology, right? Doesn't that sort of dissolve defensiveness, if you speak to a coworker in a terse way and you just you weren't appropriate and you apologize and the gospel compels you to do that. Anyway, I'll tie it off right there. Now these passages don't speak of zeal explicitly, but they do speak to the commendable pursuit of others. That your interest is in the flourishing of the other. That you leverage your influence for the benefit of others. And when we talk about leveraging influence, like our motivation in our friendships, our motivation in our homes, places of work. Like when I talk about leveraging influence, you want to use your words in a way that points people to Jesus, not necessarily to you. Or at least points in a way that like, boy, there's something going on in this person. Like they apologize when they do wrong. Or leveraging your social media account to like not argue with people that you've never met over things that don't really matter. But using that influence in order to, um, to point people to Jesus. To use your words to reconcile, to bring healing, gentleness, all, all those things that are a fruit of the Spirit. So that's what I mean by, by leveraging influence. And zeal, then, is not the problem. The motivation is the problem, right? To pursue somebody zealously is, is a good thing, Paul says, and we want to do it in a way that causes them to flourish. So this is a question that I think Christians in general need to, need to face if you're into some reflection. Um, does our ministry, I'm not like high-flown, like capital M ministry, like we've all got a ministry, like, yeah, we do. Y'all live your life. Y'all have relationships. That's what I mean. Like, does it reflect the marker there? The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So, worthy of some reflection. Now, this is where some churches would launch into uh, pep rally mode and tout how that will never happen here. And I'm really sorry to disappoint you, but I think that that attitude uh, is naive 
And I think that it is a mix of pride and arrogance to think that it can never happen in your context. It's not out there in the world. It can happen anywhere. But what I'd like to urge here is caution and vigilance. The reason that I go on in like every conversation I have about spiritual health is because I think it's really important. And I think that spiritual health is important in a community of people that are gathered around a common vision, common ideas. And if we're vigilant in our pursuit of Jesus, our community is a much safer place, right? Like you picture a community of people who are oriented in self-giving love for the flourishing of other people. Like imagine somebody comes into our midst and they're just like blown away by the ways that we express self-giving love. Like does anybody hate that? Like, oh, the way that they were trying to serve me, it was just so oppressive. Like nobody, I, I, I don't know. As I take Ephesians 5, I, I, I'm, I'm not a wife, but I imagine that the attempt of a husband to love as Christ loved the church, like, I don't think that there's going to be a lot of blowback from that. I mean, I'm not experiencing that a lot in my life um, where people are just complaining about, like, oh, they're just so self-giving. I can't stand it. Like, most of the objections I'm hearing about Christians are not related to that. They're related to other things where Christians are maybe talking about things that have nothing to do with biblically-minded faith. I'll stop talking there. Ninjas are poised, ready to, to stop my political commentary. Uh, but anyway, um, but I think that the more that we're engaged in that spiritual health, the more that we're looking to Jesus, the more we're magnifying Jesus in our worship, the safer this place becomes. And community is a tricky thing, Real characters revealed over time, right? That's what's going to happen. But we want to be oriented in faith, in hope, in love. We want to be hopeful, but we also want to be vigilant and realistic at the same time. So Christian community is marked by perhaps the right kind of zeal. And finally, and very quickly, self-giving love is evident in affection. Verses 19 and 20. Just look at what Paul says. He starts with, My children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. But I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Could you see the wheelie? Oh, this is where the windows are. Like, there's a kid on the wheelie out, out on the street. Sorry, you can't see it because you're so low. But, all right. Who put the TV over there anyway? I mean, come on. Sorry, it was a pretty good wheelie. All right. I'm focused now, uh, but consider the image here that Paul uses. Um, the mother in labor for her child again. Now, I'm not sure, biologically speaking, how that could work, but it's a very graphic image, and it just communicates depth, right? He's saying that he feels it in the deepest part of himself. And it gets a bit stranger because he describes his labor pains until Christ is formed in them. So that's like a double sort of birth imagery. Like he's feeling it himself, but he's also waiting for Christ to be formed in them. So Paul feels love for his people in his very depths, but he also aches for their maturity, right? For Christ 
to be formed in them. And that, to me, is a portrait of a Christian leader. You feel the depth of love, but you also feel the, the ache for the very best that God has for others. And to me, it points to the real necessity of spiritual transformation. The gospel is not merely a set of ideas. It's not just believing the right things in your head. But our allegiance to Jesus has to come from a place deep inside. We'll talk about this in the coming weeks when we come to the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. But for right now, I hope it's enough to say that Paul's language here communicates a a deeper thing happening inside him than just ideas. He's not just arguing with them. He's not just trying to win a theological argument. He just feels it in his whole being. And true love in community is going to have to come from that place deep inside if it's going to matter. And that requires the submission to the work of deep transformation. There, I, I know of no other way around it. I'd love for there to be a YouTube hack on that. Like, here's two minutes to spiritual health and vitality. I just historically think that it's not, it's not real. It doesn't, it doesn't happen that way. And Paul mentions, uh, finally, twice wanting to be present with them. So Paul's love for them is evident in his desire to be with them. Not, it, it shouldn't be lost on us that this is a letter. Like, this is two-dimensional. Paul's writing them a letter. It's a poor substitute for being with people. And Paul expresses that. Paul knows that being with them would be better. So he's not just sending out executive orders. He's not the Pope who's just throwing stuff out there for for churches all over to believe. He feels this desire to be with them. And this reflects the heart of God, right? This is what the incarnation of Jesus is all about. It's not enough for God to be up there in heaven. He has to come to be with us, to be present with his people. He's not far off. He needs to be present. So Paul's leadership and his ministry reflect the very heart of God in this way, to be present with his people. Now, there's a lot to take in here, and there's a lot to think through depending on where you're at. As I mentioned earlier, we're all in different places um, having experienced this uh, sort of thing. But I believe what binds us is the vision of the passage deep affection for one another in community, manifest and self-giving love, and the zealous pursuit of one another as we pursue flourishing in Jesus. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.